Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. AINC programming is brought to you in part by Weissman Family Dental in Boulder, Colorado. For over 25 years, Weissman Family Dental has been providing high-quality dentistry. They offer regular checkups, emergency care, and a wide range of specialty services. They also have staff that speak Spanish. If you are looking for a new dentist, find them at WeissmanFamilyDental.com or call them at 303-494-0101 and tell them Audio Information Network of Colorado sent you. Your regularly scheduled program is not available at this time. Please enjoy this special broadcast on AINC. You are listening to the Boulder County News. My name is Leslie Madsen. Today's top stories, City Sets Groundbreaking for North Boulder Library Branch. After years of preparation and decades of discussion, construction is scheduled to begin Wednesday on the long-awaited North Boulder Library Branch. In anticipation for the new facility, there was a groundbreaking ceremony Wednesday at 4500 13th Street. Um, hopefully it happened because it was weather dependent and if rescheduled there will be further information on the library's website. I'm really excited that we can celebrate our library, said Stephen Frost, who is vice chair of the Boulder Public Library Commission. The last time we got a brand new library was 36 years ago. There's a lot of conversations about growth in the city, and I think this is a way that we can see positive growth. The North Boulder Library Branch has been in the making for over 30 years and was solidified as a community and work plan priority in the 2018 Library Master Plan, the news release said, and construction is expected to take about a year. It's going to be awesome, said Boulder Library Director David Farnan. That community has wanted the library for more than 30 years. There were plans from the 1980s, so it's just going to be a great library. The parcel of land was identified as the preferred site for this facility back in 1999. The large lot is outside of the city's floodplain and can accommodate a high-quality building, related outdoor space, nature-based programming, and adequate parking. The location is accessible by public transit and alternative modes of travel, like biking or walking. It is also adjacent to several communities that have historically been underserved, including Boulder Meadows and Ponderosa. The branch will also serve as the new center for adult literacy and language learning while providing additional after-school programs. The overall budget for the planning, design, and construction of the facility is $12.5 million, and it comes from the Community, Culture, and Safety Tax, Developmental Excise Tax, comes from impact fees and the library fund. The library is expected to become part of a soon-to-be-formed library district with operations costs that will be covered by the district's budget. Some of the plans are still unfunded due to a funding gap created by the escalating costs of construction, which have been catalyzed by the coronavirus pandemic. For now, the 1,100-square-foot culinary maker space 
that the community requested will instead be an empty flex space unless additional donations are secured to support the Boulder Library Foundation's $1.5 million NOBO capital campaign. There might be another funding opportunity to be secured as well, according to the news release. An anonymous donor will match every donation up to $30,000 between now and Library Giving Day, which is scheduled for April 4th. That was stated by Chris Barge, who is Executive Director of the Boulder Public Library Foundation. Barge said that thanks to a $700,000 grant from the Colorado Health Foundation, the foundation has raised $915,000 towards its $1.5 million fundraising goal. The grant will fund outdoor amenities, which were requested by community members, but then cut from the original North Boulder Library budget. The Novo Library has been a long time coming, but it's going to be worth the wait, he said. It's up to the community now to vote with their donations on how much of their vision for this branch will be realized. And more information about the campaign for the new library branch is available at www.boulderlibraryfoundation.org slash Novo Capital Campaign. Again, that's one word, BoulderLibraryFoundation.org. And speaking of grants, BVSD is applying for a middle school math tutoring grant. The Boulder Valley School District is applying for a two-year, $1.1 million competitive state grant that would pay for intensive tutoring for middle school students who fell behind in math during the pandemic. Boulder Valley is focusing on middle school math because that's where the district saw the greatest declines during and after the pandemic, according to district officials. On the statewide tests that are given were given last spring, Boulder Valley students scored lower in math, both at middle and high school, with the largest decreases at grade 7, 9, and 11. At the middle school level, there is a need for additional support in math specifically, said Boulder Valley spokesman Randy Barber. This uses research-based best practices for how to support students. Research, as outlined in a story in the Heckengerger report, shows that tutoring is most effective when it's daily and individualized and happens during the school day. The grant requires that students are helped in small groups by high-quality tutors at least three times a week throughout the entire year. Services also must be provided during the school day using a high-quality curriculum at low-performing schools with high numbers of low-income, second-language, special education, or minority students. Boulder Valley is applying to support tutoring at two middle schools, Casey in Boulder and Angevine in Lafayette. Angevine and Casey schools meet the grant's demographic requirements as well as serving a high proportion of students that are scoring below grade level in math. Casey is also identified under state accountability systems for priority improvement. If the district receives the grant, the plan is to hire five licensed teachers to work as students using as tutors. These five licensed to, uh, teachers will work as tutors 
using the same curriculum and methods that are used in the school's regular math classes. Tutoring will then be provided in addition to students' regular math class during intervention blocks and study hall. They may also include push-in support during regular classes. Tutors would work with small groups of up to four students for 30 minutes five days a week. The program will serve about 175 students at Casey and 100 at Angevine each year of the two-year grant with students identified based on standardized test scores and grades. We are hoping to see great results, said Casey Middle School Principal Bryant Shaw. He said providing tutoring during the day makes it much more accessible since students do not have to worry about transportation or conflicting after-school commitments. This will help cover the ground that's needed for students to get some of these skills covered, he said. With skill building with math, the next phase of math is built on the phase before it. When you have those gaps, it's very hard to keep up with the pace. And along with applying for a grant to provide the tutoring, the district is adopting new middle school math materials. These materials will be available for public review by appointment at the Education Center in Boulder through March 3rd to schedule a review appointment for access to the or for access to the digital materials, you may contact Lisa Chinnery at lisa.chinnery at bbsd.org. Her last name is spelled C-H-I-N-N-E-R-Y. Here's another education article. BBSD shadowed for fresh scratch kitchen program. School food leaders visit to learn about healthy eating practices. With California moving to universal school lunches this year and providing more support for purchasing local food, Christina Lawson is working on moving her small school district north of Sacramento to a scratch cooking program. She's also getting some extra help through a new fellowship that has been created by the Chef Ann Foundation, which was founded by former Boulder Valley Food Services Director Ann Cooper. It's a perfect opportunity to make sure that we're setting ourselves up for success, Lawson said. She joined three other fellows for a visit last week to see Boulder Valley's Central Kitchen, Greenhouse, and School Lunches in Action. Scratch cooking is a little scary, she said. I am looking for best practices with getting kids to buy in, and it needs to be sustainable. I would like to make small graduate changes gradual changes. There's a lot to glean from what they're doing here. She added that one of her biggest takeaways has been Boulder Valley's fearlessness in just going for it. Along with the four fellows visiting Boulder Valley, another 20 fellows are visiting districts in California, New Jersey, Massachusetts, and Virginia. Included in that group is Boulder Valley kitchen manager Barbara McLeod, who is visiting California. Mara Fleischman, who is Chief Executive Officer of the Chef Anne Foundation, came up with the idea for the year-long Healthy School Food Pathway Fellowship Program, which welcomed this first group in January. The program is funded by the Whole Kids Foundation and the State of California, with the state covering the 12 California Fellows. Fleischman said that the goal is 
to help mid-level school food service employees think differently about their jobs by considering how school food contributes to sustainable food systems, better nutrition, and a lifelong healthy eating habits. I want to help them build knowledge, she said. Fleischman said the program is hands-on and covers all aspects of making a locally sourced scratch-cooked program work, including finance, procurement, leadership, facilities, and recipe development. The program also includes lessons on diversity, equity, and inclusion, along with visiting model school districts. The fellows participate in weekly live learning sessions. They visit the Culinary Institute for Child Nutrition. They earn credit toward a certificate from the UCLA Food Studies Program, and they build a network of supportive peers. They also receive $5,000 to pilot a project in their own school districts. The fellows can solve real-time issues in their school districts. She said it's so very cool. Shauna Cash, who is Acting Food Services Director for three charter high schools affiliated with Purdue University in Indiana, said her goal is to move away from providing food through an outside company and start their own lunch program. It has just been amazing to learn from people who have walked this path, she said. It really matters. It's really foundational to get the food right. If you're hungry or if you just ate donuts, you may be disruptive in class later. We want consistent, high-quality meals. Boulder Valley's program, she said, is really remarkable. The fellowship is a really great opportunity to network and learn from other people, like what really works. We have experts who can tell us this is where you can start. Richie Willem, who is culinary manager at California's Vacaville Unified School District, said, it's almost too easy to depend on processed, prepackaged food for school lunches. Fresh local food is so much better for the students, he said. While his district does as much scratch-based cooking as we can, he said he's always looking for ways to improve. We do have our own challenges, he said. A big focus is on helping the staff at our school sites become more comfortable and confident with cooking. Before, they just had to heat it up to a safe temperature and then put it out. He said that seeing the scale of Boulder Valley's scratch cooking operation was helpful, as was learning more about how the district develops and tests recipes. His district enrolls about 12,500 students, while Boulder Valley's enrollment is about 28,000 students. Everything is a learning opportunity, he said. And if you were at the Lafayette Library a few days ago, maybe you saw the Pause to Read program, Kids Read, Dogs Listen at Lafayette Library. The Pause to Read program at Lafayette Public Library encourages kids to read in a safe environment with a furry friend. Kids of all ages can pick out a book, sit down and read out loud with a certified therapy dog on the second and fourth Sunday of every month at the Library Public at the Lafayette Public Library. May Lowry and her husband, Larry Fisher, are the main volunteers for the program, and they said that they had therapy dogs of their own, 
but that their dogs had died a few years ago. And they missed having their therapy dogs around. So they started volunteering with the program in 2018 just to be around dogs again. Lowry and Fisher said that the goal of the program is not to monitor the kids' reading comprehension, but rather to create a positive environment for the kids to read. We want to create a fun and positive place for kids and their families to enjoy reading in the, and at the library, Lowry said. Fisher said that sometimes there is a wait list because there's so many kids that want to read with a dog, but on slower days he is happy to see kids read to each dog. Angelique Velasco, who is Communications Outreach Librarian, said that while the program does not monitor reading progress, she does see the children's confidence grow in regards to reading. Kids can read without being embarrassed or feeling judged or shy. They can sit with a dog who will show them unconditional love and patience, Velasco said. She said that a little bit of puppy love is more than enough encouragement to get kids who normally would not read to read. And it gets kids to read for fun and not necessarily assigned reading work. She also noticed, noted that Kids love to read books about dogs to the dogs. Stephanie George Weilert and Tim Weilert took their son, Georgie Weilert, to the Pause to Read program for the first time last Sunday. Stephanie and Tim Weilert said that while their son is a strong reader, but he struggled with group reading time. They said that Georgie is on the autism spectrum and the noise and chaos of the group story time sometimes could be overwhelming for him. They said that Georgie loves reading and he loves dogs, so why not combine both? Stephanie Weilert said that reading with therapy dogs provide a safe, quiet environment for Georgie to pick out a good book and to hang out with all the dogs. Georgie was more than happy to make his way around with all the dogs and read to each of them. I love dogs and I love reading, Georgie said. The Pause to Read Partners also partners with the Alliance of Therapy Dogs, which provides testing, certification, registration, insurance, and support for people who volunteer with their therapy dogs. The ATD tests therapy dogs every year and makes sure that dogs are healthy and have all their required vaccinations. The Alliance of Therapy Dogs also assures that the dogs are still qualified to be therapy dogs and that these dogs enjoy their volunteer work. Joy Wexels has more than 15 years of experience with therapy dogs and is a member of ATD. Wexels and her dog Chica have been volunteering together for five years. She said that sometimes all people just, all that people need after a stressful week is a little love from a dog. She and Chica are more than happy to help. It's wonderful to go someplace with the dog and watch the dog connect with people, Wexel said. You always people go, this is just what I needed, or this just made my day. And here's more news from Lafayette Public Library. The Lafayette Public Library is celebrating Black History Month. The library will host author, activist, and poet, Theo Wilson from 3 p.m. to 5 p.m. this Saturday. Wilson will also give a presentation to dispel myths about Martin Luther King Jr. in a presentation entitled King's Dream versus Our Reality, Hope in the Face of Resurgent Racism. Wilson will speak of the legacy of Dr. King. From 3 p.m. until 5 p.m. on February 18th, 
Niyabel Bior, who is a teacher and former refugee from South Sudan, will present Changing Your Blues to Blue Skies, as well as an art activity. According to the library, the Lafayette Public Library website, her books are about how colors can have multiple and opposite meanings, and she learned to have respect for herself and others. There will also be free copies of Bior's book entitled My Beautiful Colors that will be available while supplies last. Bior's event is part of the 2023 Boulder Black County or Boulder County Black History Celebration. That's being organized by Boulder County's Executive Committee for African American Cultural Events in Boulder County, NAACP. Both events are open to the public. No registration is required. In an email, Library Director Melissa Hissel said that Black Americans are often overlooked and that the library intends to honor and acknowledge Black History Month. At the library, we share the work of black writers and artists all year long, and we believe that it is essential to focus attention on the contributions of black Americans during the month of February, Hissel said. The Lafayette City Council proclaimed February as Black History Month during its February 7th meeting. During the council meeting, council member Tim Barnes said that he looks forward to seeing the strength of the black community in Lafayette continue to grow. And now turning to the town of Louisville, Louisville to gather community input on Marshall Fire Commemorative Art. Uh, Louisville Art Installation, which honors the Marshall Fire, has been postponed in order to gather input from fire survivors. The proposed sculpture entitled Community Resilience was tabled at the January 10th Louisville City Council meeting because during that meeting, Council decided to send the proposal back to the Cultural Council for further consideration and potential options for location of the sculpture. Cultural Vice Chair Keeley Taylor said during the January 10th meeting that the community suffered a collective trauma because of the Marshall Fire. And art is a great way to commemorate both the suffering as well as the resilience of the city. By placing the sculpture on Main Street, our community as a whole will have an opportunity to engage with this art. Erica Schmidt, who is the Arts and Events Program Manager, said at that meeting that a call for entry for commissions to commemorate the Marshall Fire was sent out in 2022. That call for entries included that the artwork would be located in historic downtown Louisville. The Cultural Council also voted to have the sculpture be displayed outside of City Hall because it's in one of the highest traffic areas of the city and has high visible uh, visibility and would not need residents and visitors to search for it. But Louisville City Council also directed staff to consider additional options and alternative locations for the art installation. Council Member Deborah Fahi said that having the installation in an area that was affected by the fire would have a greater emotional impact. Fahi said that the sculpture is more than just an artwork but also serves as a memorial for the Marshall Fire. During the February 7th City Council meeting, 2023 Cultural Council Chair Grace Gee said that the artist of the sculpture consulted with the fire survivors and the jury who selected the art 
that had multiple fire survivors survivors as well. She also said that the community resilience sculpture is not meant to be the official memorial, but just one of them. City Manager Jeff Durbin said during last month's meeting that the Cultural Council still has the budget from 2022 that could be carried forward to the 2023 budget, which could allow for two Marshall Fire artworks. Staff plans to solicit input from the entire community to determine the best outcome, which is to commemorate the Marshall Fire that began on December 30th, 2021. We will share an update with the council and the community at a future meeting date, the Lewis City Hall email stated and the Louisville Cultural Council and city staff will work to consider other options and locations as well for the art installation. And in more Marshall Fire recovery news, homeowners need to take advantage of energy efficient rebates. The majority of homeowners who are rebuilding after the Marshall Fire in Superior are choosing energy efficiency but are not registering for rebates. According to a press release issued on February 9th from Alexis Bullen, who is the sustainability analyst for Superior, almost of the almost 200 building permits that have been submitted to the town of Superior, approximately 70% of rebuilding homeowners are choosing to rebuild to higher energy codes despite the option to opt out. Bullen said that people are choosing to build to the 2021 International Energy Conservation Code standard or higher. Bullen said that rebates are also available to help make building an energy efficient home more achievable. Due to concerns that the building to the new energy conservation codes are more expensive. However, Bullen said that of the homeowners who have chosen to build to the newer conservation code, only 20% have registered for rebates through Excel Energy or through the Colorado Energy Office. Depending on the energy efficiency of a home, homeowners who lost their home in the fire and are rebuilding can qualify for a rebate of up to $37,500, though Excel Energy and $10,000 through the Colorado Energy Office. Okay, so through Excel, it's over $37,000 possible for rebates. $10,000 through the Colorado Energy Office. Bowen said that rebuilding homeowners should sign up for rebates when submitting a permit application. Bowen also said that until April 27th, a Marshall Fire Energy Smart Advisor will be available for walk-in services from 9 a.m. to noon every second and fourth Thursday of the month in order to answer questions at the Superior Community Center at 1500 Colton Road. More information on rebates and incentives for rebuilding a home after the fire can be found at www.rebuildingbetter.org. Former Representative Tracy Burnett pleads guilty. Former House District 12 Representative Tracy Burnett, who is accused of lying about her primary residence to run for re-election, has pleaded guilty in her case February 10th and was given a deferred judgment and probation. Burnett, age 67, pleaded guilty in Boulder District Court to a felony count of attempt to influence a public servant and a misdemeanor count of perjury. Per the plea agreement, Burnett will be sentenced to a two-year deferred judgment on the attempt to influence count 
and a concurrent two-year probation sentence on the perjury count. A deferred judgment means that if Burnett complies with the conditions of her probation and avoids any new criminal charges during those uh, two years, she will be allowed to withdraw her guilty plea to the felony and the count will be dismissed. The misdemeanor count will remain on her record. Burnett will have to complete 150 hours of community service and state for the record that she was not eligible to run for office in November. Burnett, a Democrat who won re-election in November but then resigned her seat in early January, a vacancy committee last month appointed Louisville City Councilman Kyle Brown to replace Burnett. I apologize to those who supported me as well as the citizens of Colorado, she said during the hearing. My life has always involved public service and I will continue to do what I can for the public good. Boulder District Judge Nancy Salomani accepted the plea deal and issued the stipulated sentence. When one person takes an action that encourages the distrust that our country has in our public servants, it endangers all public servants and endangers democracy, the judge stated. And according to an affidavit, prosecutors determined, although Burdett rented an apartment in Louisville in order to qualify for elected office. She did not actually live there. These criminal acts, including the filing of false sworn documents, violated the public trust and the integrity of our election process, said Boulder County District Attorney Michael Dury. I want to acknowledge and thank the District Attorney Investigators and Chief Deputy District Attorney Adrian Van Nice for their hard work in developing the evidence and making this outcome possible. It is wholly unacceptable when public servants violate the law and the public's trust in connection with their duties. Louisville resident Therese Watson is the one who filed the complaint with the DA's office in September, claiming that Burnett falsified her residency. According to that affidavit, Burnett, who had been serving her first term in office, listed the same Crestview Lane address on her candidate affidavits in 2018, 2019, and 2020 in campaign filings with the Colorado Secretary of State's office. But that address, which is in unincorporated Boulder County, south of Longmont, was redrawn into House District 19 during last year's redistricting process, along with Erie, Firestone, Frederick, and DeCano. In November of 2021, Burnett entered a Steel Street address in Louisville on her candidate affidavit for re-election to House District 12. Burnett listed a P.O. box in Niwot as her mailing address, which she had updated in 2020. But according to an affidavit, examinations of Burnett's social media posts indicated that she's still living on Crestview Lane and that she maintained a large tomato garden there and that she had current family photos there and was promoted and promoting a happy marriage to her husband who still lives on Crestview Lane and also has frequent visitors from her Maine Coon cat in her home office. A search of the Louisville apartment found no evidence of a pet, no computers, printers, or TV, and the space was spartanly furnished with no personal or family photographs and no indication of a pet. Investigators say that the cabinets were covered in cobwebs and that the only food items in the refrigerator were a bottle of sparkling cider, soy sauce, and Smucker's spread. There was only a stick of butter in the freezer and no ice. The affidavit said that the garage was empty and the bedroom consisted of a bed on the floor, while the closet only had a few items of women's clothing. 
According to the affidavit, the investigators also spoke to neighbors of the Louisville unit who all said that they either rarely or never saw Bennett Burnett. One neighbor said that the one time she did see Burnett, she tried to make, take a selfie with him and appeared to be trying to prove that they were neighbors. Investigators also pulled cell phone data and showed that Burnett made 31 times more connections to the cell tower near her Crestview address than the Louisville address, and utility bills showed lower than average electricity and water usage for most of the time that she claimed she was living there. Through the investigation, it was determined that she falsely represented her residence over a nine-month period to qualify for elected office and that she filed a sworn document with the Secretary of State's office to influence their determination that she qualified for the ballot. The affidavit read, also, by misrepresenting her residence, she voted in a district in which she actually did not live. It's worth noting that local matters were also on that ballot that were available only to local voters. It is clear from the investigation that contrary to her submissions to the Secretary of State that she continued to live with her family in another district. Boulder's search for a new independent police monitor continues. Boulder has announced that it will continue its search for a new independent police monitor who will work alongside the city's police oversight panel. On January 4th, the city announced Kathy Rodriguez, Gina Torres, and Mac Muir as the three finalist candidates for the vacant role. As of February 8th, Boulder City Manager Nuria Rivera-Vandermeed indicated that she had recently met with the top candidate, although it's unclear who that candidate was. However, according to a Wednesday news release, Boulder has determined that none of the candidates had the mix of skills required for where Boulder is in its oversight journey. I appreciate the excellent candidates who have applied for the independent monitor position during our initial search, and we are grateful for their participation in this competitive process. Amy Kane equity officer at the City of Boulder stated in the news release. Unfortunately, we have not yet found a candidate with the specific skills and experience to fit this highly specialized staffing position. We look forward to a new influx of applications as we continue our national search for just the right person. The role of the Independent Police Monitor in Boulder is to receive and review police-related complaints as well as to work with the Police Oversight Panel and the Boulder Police Department to improve police transparency, accountability, and performance. The city's previous independent police monitor, Joey Lipari, resigned in September 2022. And returning to news from Erie, Erie Shutter's DEI Advisory Board in order to create a task force. The Erie Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Advisory Board will dissolve in order to create a private group. Dissolution of the DEI Advisory Board into a task force will allow for better and more vulnerable conversations that are not part of the public record. This task force would allow for space for open conversation without fear of retaliation or harm to marginalized groups. The Erie Board of Trustees voted unanimously on Tuesday night to pass the dissolution of the advisory board. 
the DEI advisory members will establish a private task force. Dia Lindsay, who is Boulder County Judge and DEI Advisory Board member, said that equity work requires a structured conversation about race, which often includes vulnerable conversations. In order to do this work, you have to be able to speak your truth and speak freely about where you stand in terms of race and racism, Lindsay said. She said that the race that race is a difficult subject and that race conversation involves a lot of education and risk. She said that because there needs to be such open and vulnerable conversations about equity, having those vulnerable conversations in the public record may discourage people from speaking. The task force could allow for space for open conversation without fear of retaliation or harm to marginalized groups. Kendra Carberry, who is town attorney, said the task force will not be officially sponsored by Erie, but will still work closely with the town. Carberry said the task force can still report to the Board of Trustees and will be no different than other private groups that the town supports, such as the Erie Chamber of Commerce or Downtown Erie Business Association. Lindsay said that having DEI conversation will not be open meetings does not mean that the group is closing out the public and that DEI meetings will be open, the DEI meeting will be open to the public. There is a lot of fear that when we're talking about the scary racism thing, that there are like pitchforks and we're going to get people. And that's not really it, Lindsay said. She said that in order to move forward with equity, that everyone needs to be part of the conversation. Town Administrator Malcolm Fleming presented the 2023 work plan. He said the work plan prioritizes 10 projects for Erie, such as Interstate 25 Erie Gateway Design, affordable housing, sustainability initiatives, and support for the Home Rule Commission. The town also has town center initiatives as a priority and will gather community input to determine civic uses for it, including a museum, cultural arts center, or a town office space. Fleming said that the work plan demonstrates how different departments work together on issues and projects. The work plan is also intended to set expectations, time frames for projects, dedicate Board of Trustee meeting time to discuss projects and prioritize efforts. Fleming said that the work plan will be used to show quarterly updates on projects and to reprioritize projects if new issues arise. We should do a few things and then do them exemplary rather than doing many things in a mediocre way, Fleming said. Fleming also said that the work plan still includes the multi-year projects such as public art programs and landfill management. Trustee Brandon Bell said that it's important for residents to understand that the town values landfill management and oversight. He said that currently the only entrance is on County Road 5 and there needs to be more than just one singular entrance. Bell said that the landfill has another 50 years of operation life left and that industrial operation should not happen close to residential areas, that that could be a danger to the public. And in other Erie news, Erie has been awarded $55,000 from the Government Alliance on Race and equity to support equitable business ownership in town. Erie is one of six municipalities to receive GARE grant funding, and that also includes New York City and Chicago. 
This grant money will support the Erie Racial Equity Pilot, which will create and develop a business incubator program. The incubator model will create a space for business amenities, meeting space, and educational business tools and services. The pilot program and Erie Town staff will work with racially marginalized residents in order to shape and guide the purpose of the pilot program. According to the Erie website, the town recognizes the importance of nurturing a healthy entrepreneurial ecosystem that focuses on eliminating structural racism. And in terms of upcoming Erie events, Remember that Family Storytime is designed for children ages 2 to 5 years old with a longer attention span featuring books and songs and actions that support early literacy and a love for reading. That's at 10.30 a.m. on Wednesdays at the Erie Community Library, 400 Powers Street. Free! And there is at the Erie Community Library on Wednesdays at 4 p.m. a teen podcast club. Each month, the group will listen to podcasts and discuss them. Snacks are provided 4 p.m. on Wednesdays, but do go to mylibrary.evaned.info for more information. Also, this Saturday at 1 p.m., there's going to be a hand-spinning class at the Erie Community Library. Come and learn the art of hand-spinning. Participants will be taught the basics of how to Hand spin fiber into yarn. That's a free event this Saturday, 1 p.m. at the Erie Community Library at 400 Powers Street. And now we turn to news from Niwot and Gun Barrel. Reading articles from the left-hand Valley Courier. Boulder County Commissioner Ashley Stolzman attends LID meeting. The Niwot Local Improvement District Advisory Committee, known as LID, its February meeting opened with a presentation from 18-year veteran Sergeant Michael Hill of the Colorado State Patrol. LID members also welcomed another guest who offered her perspective on plan traffic improvements on Highway 119. Boulder County Commissioner Ashley Stoltzman, who was elected to replace Matt Jones last fall, also attended the February LID meeting at the Niwot Inn on February 7th. She gave her perspective on the traffic issues concerning Highway 119 and the Niwot Road intersection. Stoltzman said that when it comes to improving the flow of traffic on the diagonal highway, the intersection with Highway 52 is the bottleneck. When asked about an underpass to Niwot, from the planned bikeway down the median of the diagonal, she responded, we want to separate pedestrians from traffic, but she noted that an underpass could cost as much as $20 million. That could be cost prohibitive. Sergeant Hill, who is an accident reconstructionist, noted that the Niwot Road and Highway 119 intersection was the second deadliest intersection in Boulder County, exceeded only by the fatal crashes at the Highway 287 and Highway 52 intersection just east of Niwot. We have a severe crash problem at Highway 119 and Niwot Road, he said. I can pick up triple digits almost any day on 119 at Niwot Road. LID member Cornelia Saleh invited Sergeant Hill to the meeting, who described his history having grown up in Boulder and worked in Boulder County for 10 years. Hill said that speed 
was responsible for most of the fatalities and also cited the fact that lights on Niwot Road are not synchronized, leading Niwot Road motorists crossing Longmont-bound lanes to think that they have a green light when, in fact, they are looking at lights on the boulder-bound lanes. The divided highway is a blessing, Hill said. The origin of most of the accidents is the northbound lanes. People on Niwot Road see uh, lighting on the southbound lanes and proceed into the intersection. There are also numerous rear-end collisions, mostly in the northbound lanes, but they are not as deadly. When asked about the speed limit difference of 55 mile an hour from Niwot to Boulder compared to 65 miles per hour from Niwot to Longmont, Hill responded, it absolutely does contribute to accidents. There's no reason to have a 65 mile per hour speed limit. Speeds approaching the intersection should be reduced at Niwot Road and every intersection along Highway 119. Hill noted that the green arrow only light on Highway 287 and Highway 52 was tweaked and it resulted in a reduction of serious accidents. LID member Heidi Stortz asked if the planned bus lanes on 119 at Niwot Road would complicate things with bicycle traffic, and Hill responded that the bus lanes at 63rd Street and 119 work pretty well. Bruce Rabeler, who is LID treasurer, submitted his report as his five-year term ends at the end of this month. LID funds paid out in 2022 a total of $205,520 which was more than the amount budgeted, but well under the actual amount of sales taxes collected in 2022. Tax collections through November were $262,000 in 2022, which was an increase of 8.9% over the same period the previous year. The budget for 2023 is $215,000, which represents an 80% of the actual revenues from 2021. The reserve funds were estimated at $307,000 at the end of 2021, and once December numbers are reported, the reserve fund is expected to exceed $390,000. LID policy calls for a reserve of not less than $60,000 as a buffer for possible reductions in revenue collection in any given year. The only funding request presented to the LID was from the NIWAP Business Association, which requested $7,500 to fund the position of Economic Development Director for the first quarter of 2023. Catherine McHale, who served as the EDD for the past several years, presented the request and noted that the position was changing as the MBA is seeking more administrative support for events and projects in addition to marketing the town. The funding request was approved unanimously. The Small Town Big Heart marketing campaign will con continue, but Marketing NIWAT does a great day out will be part of the 2023 approach. This campaign would focus on tying together multiple ideas to make NIWAT an appealing destination for a day out, according to the NBA's 2023 marketing plan. By associating a few different reasons to visit, we try to get people to say yes to a day or morning afternoon in NIWAP. The NIWAP Future League, or the NFL, is a committee appointed by the NBA to supervise the EDD and meets monthly to review the work of the EDD and to set goals for future activities. When it was first formed in 2013, the committee was known as the Revitalization Committee with the stated goal of filling as many vacant commercial spaces in town. 
NFL members include NBA President Derek Bergenson, NBA past presidents Tony Santelli, and Biff Warren, commercial property and business owners Alex Klubeck and Pastel, Carrie Wise, former NBA Streetscapes coordinator Chuck Kluber, and left-hand Grange number 9 president Jim Dorvey. Property owner Cotton Burden recently retired from the committee and property and business owner Mary Kuntz has joined the NFL. And here's a fun story entitled, Story Behind the Name, Pick Gold Ball. When Niwot resident Carolyn Bradley steps onto the field of battle, she comes armed with strategy. Keep your opponents at the baseline. Get yourself and your partner to the net. Drop the ball low and tight just into the kitchen. Stay focused. I realize I don't hit it hard enough so the better players can put it away, Bradley admitted. I have to improve that as well as my short game. She was talking, of course, about pickleball, the wildly popular racket sport. I always enjoyed tennis, and it's similar enough that I could pick it up pretty fast, she said. Pickleball is now the fastest-growing sport in the United States, according to CBS News, National Public Radio, Yahoo.com, Forbes. Well, take your pick of news outlets. There's no argument here. Bradley frequently plays on indoor courts at the Longmont Recreation Center, which hosts pickup games on weekdays. When the weather is better, she plays on reserve courts at Hoover Acres Park in Longmont. It's a great winter game, Bradley said. I enjoy it and enjoy the people. Bradley is a well-known Niwot artist. Her paintings are peaceful, bucolic, and in direct contrast with the killer instinct that she's cultivating on the pickleball court. Okay, well, maybe killer instinct is a bit strong, since Bradley clearly appreciates the way that most Boulder County players welcome all skill levels. It's just a fun game, she said with a wide smile. While Bradley knows plenty about pickleball, there's one critical bit of information that she and other accomplished players frequently get wrong. When asked how pickleball got its name, Bradley laughed and shared what she's been told by others who have been around the game longer. There are some people in Seattle whose kids were bored with tennis, so they started figuring out the shorter game, she explained. And when the ball would go out of bounds, their dog would get it, and their dog was named Pickles. Now, wait just a second before you start sharing that tale at cocktail parties, because here's what USA Pickleball, the governing body for American pickleballs, has to say on this matter. It is true that pickleball was founded by a group of Washingtonians on Brainbridge Island and that they were looking for a new outlet to entertain their kids. There was also a dog named Pickles, but it seemed that Pickles was late to the game. We know this because USA Pickleball did some sleuthing. The following excerpt comes from the usapickleball.org website. We looked for dog records, uncovered photos, and interviewed several people who were there from 1965 to 1970. Based on evidence, we learned that the dog was born in 1968, three years after Pickleball was first played and named. Aha! So Pickles the dog, while clearly a beloved, important, and reportedly overfed contributor to the sport, was not the reason that Pickleball got its name. It is an undisputed fact that Pickleball began and was also named in the summer of 1965 by Joan Pritchard, the website reports, Joan's husband, Joel Pritchard, was one of the game's inventors. In the summer of 1965, at the urging of board family members, Joel Pritchard and a friend took a plastic perforated ball and a pair of ping pong paddles to a paved badminton court in the backyard. 
Within weeks, the net was brought to the ground. The paddles evolved into sturdier versions, and voila, pickleball was born. Joan Pritchard was an alumnus of Marietta College in Ohio. That had one of the strongest crew programs in the country. Joan loved varsity crew competitions, and she often stayed for the races, which came after hers. That's when the non-starters or spare racers would randomly pile into boats as thrown-together crew would take each other on just for fun. Those boats were called pickle boats. The Pritchard's son, Frank, is quoted on usapickleball.org when talking about his mother, saying she thought pickleball sort of threw bits of other games into the mix and decided that pickleball was an appropriate name. So let's go a step further into our bonus round question. Pickleball has a zone near the net where the ball can't be volleyed. It's called the kitchen. If a player is in the kitchen, he or she lets the ball bounce before hitting it or forfeits the point. Where did the term kitchen come from? Bradley shared the prevailing theory. The kitchen line could have come from shuffleboard, Bradley explained. If a shuffleboard player lands a puck in the kitchen, that player loses 10 points. It might have been a transfer from that. Story behind the name does not refute or condone that theory. That's a column for another time. Undaunted by that lack of confirmation, Bradley put forth another theory. I think anybody who enjoys a racket sport would enjoy it. Given the passion for pickleball in the left-hand valley and beyond, that idea seems to be a pretty good bet. And last Saturday, people packed Cottonwood Square and 2nd Avenue for the Let's Wine About Winter event that was sponsored by the NIWAT Cultural Arts Association with partial funding provided by the NIWAT Local Improvement District. After a two-year hiatus, the tasting event attracted more than 30 shops businesses and restaurants who participated in the event, as well as over 400 participants. We haven't had it since 2019, and we just love the event, said business owner Holly D. Apolito. It brings tons of people into our business and gives us great exposure. D. Apolito runs Nourish and Company. That's the wellness center on 2nd Avenue that has services ranging from massage therapy to hair design to personal training and more. The businesses had fun and got creative with their booths. Most had one to three wine offerings. Some had other aperitifs, such as alcoholic coffee at the Niwat Pizza and Niwat Liquor location. We were teaming up with lefties, and we love lefties, explained Tom Valdez of Niwat Liquor. The event was wonderful. It gets bigger every year, and we're helped out by the weather this year, which was really nice. There were a few other businesses who teamed up for the events, including Niwat Natural Medicine, which partnered with Kilt Farm and 303 Photo Booth. That was fabulous, really fun. Everyone was really happy. People came from all over, said Janine Malcolm of Niwat Natural Medicine. Both the vendors and participants expressed excitement about the chance for the community to come together. I love the community. I love how supportive everyone is of each other. And I love just all the quirky personalities that we get to meet and enjoy every day, said Carissa Mina, who is co-owner of the Wandering Jellyfish Bookshop. Later in the day, the bookshop hosted local author and illustrator Kaz Windness, who invited participants to paint on thrift store paintings with her. We had a steady flow of people in and out of the store. It's been really good for business, and everyone's in a really good mood. It was really, really nice, said Marcy Krieger, a Let's 
Wine About Winter participant. We have been to a couple of places that we've never actually been into before and will come back to. You've been listening to the Boulder County News. My name is Leslie Madsen. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.